Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Good morning, church family. Everybody give it up for Miss Amanda Gray. She was terrified. We were joking about her. We're like, man, she's been calling, texting, mailing us, just pining for opportunities to come read and be on stage. And she was like, stop. Oh, man, so happy to be here with you. My name is Corey, one of the pastors on staff. Uh, get to be your teaching pastor uh, today, which I'm super stoked uh, to get to do. And uh, before we do that, I do want to celebrate with you. A few weeks ago, I wasn't here, and, and David Seaton uh, preached a bomb sermon that I got to recap a little bit of, so you know where we're at today. Uh, but I wasn't here because we were at a, a gala or a gala. How many of you say gala? Okay, how many of you say, how many of you say gala? There's a few. Okay, okay, got it. So um, we were at a gala then, for, to be culturally appropriate here, uh, for foster, adoptive, and vulnerable uh, kiddos. Uh, the whole thing was centered around my story, which is um, kind of pretty specific to me, obviously, and so some aspects of it you read, and then some aspects of my story actually had paid actors as kids that like read like parts of my story at the age that I would have been during that aspect uh, of my story. And so it was incredible to get to go. If you uh, remember David talking about that a little bit, we had a car wreck while we were there. We had a blowout while we were there. The enemy hated uh, that we were there. And at the end of the day, uh, the Holy Spirit showed up and did work while we were there. And uh, that gala raised, that first night anyway, $400,000 for foster adoptive kiddos. And uh, totally worth cheering for it. Yes, good job. If one of you clap, we talk about this all the time, all of you need to clap. Okay, that's... That's how we do it. And so uh, I just want to celebrate that. One, that's just unbelievable. And two, it's also unbelievable to be in a church body where like, I'm not necessary, and so I can leave and go do things like that. And so I'm super thankful. Let me uh, pray to help center my own thoughts here, and then we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians 13. Father in heaven, uh, man, we thank you for incredible worship. Gosh, I, just, I, I love just getting to show up and get to partake. And even though I'm on staff, uh, just get to be a Christian and worship and not have to think about uh, what's happening behind the scenes, God. You have given us incredible uh, leaders, women and men alike, and they usher us into the throne room of grace. And so they are a grace to us. As we talk about gifts and grace, Lord, their gifts are used to grace us and point us to your son. And thank you. We're so thankful. Uh, I pray for myself here in light of gifting, God, as I get to teach and preach. I pray as always that you would anoint just my mouth, Lord. Help me speak words of truth, man, that set the captive free today. I uh, pray for my mind that he would slow and steady my own anxieties and emotions today. Help me be attentive uh, to your spirit this morning. Help me be attentive to those who are in the room with me. Uh, let me know if I need to push in a little deeper, draw back a little bit. Uh, heaven forbid, Lord, I get in the way of this sermon today. And so I pray that you remove me from the stage. Uh, God, may your word remain, the Holy Spirit uh, remain. As I prayed in the first service, God, as we talk about this text, overused at weddings, Lord, uh, may it back us so deep into a corner that only the Shekinah glory of Jesus can walk us out of that corner. Uh, God, may we not leave today without coming face to face uh, with a 
Jesus that hung on the cross in our place. Lord, may we not overlook our sin lest we leave here and just continue to look like the world. And so, God, you can do all these things. You've promised that you'll make them happen. And so we're just asking you, God, to be who you are, which is faithful. Um, we pray all this in the sweet and precious name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen. amen. And amen. And so there's a coffee shop that I love to go to in the Quad Cities. Imagine that. There's this coffee shop that I love. And when I go visit Andrea's family, it's this coffee shop called Milltown Coffee. And the way that this coffee shop is positioned is you're, when you sit down in there to, to drink a cup of coffee, you're almost eye level with this river that's kind of passing there. It's the Mississippi River. So, you know, it's super clean. And so when you're sitting down and you're kind of looking out at this river, man, you see trees flow through that thing. You see bark. You see trash, obviously, going down. There's all sorts of nasty things you don't want to see that are on the top of that water. But you watch kind of this just raging river uh, pass by Milltown coffee as you sat there. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking like, that's a really good picture of God's love. Like God's love, if you guys could throw this up on the screen for me, God's love is covenantal. That means I love you regardless. Like I love you before you even knew me type of love. I knew you at your depths, at your worst, at your most depraved, most sinful, most angry, most unloving a moment of your life. I knew you and chose you and pursued you regardless of what you would do for me, regardless of how you would respond, respond to me in love. And so when you think about God's love being covenantal, man, it's like a raging river. Like there's nothing that you can do or that I can do that can dam up the love of God. There's nothing that we can do that could ever stop the love of God from being an ever-flowing, eternal, miraculous, life-giving sort of love that is kind of blast against us because of the finished work of Christ. His love is covenantal. It's covenantal love. It's an eternal Love, when you think about a river, right, a tree, think about it, a tree can fall into a river, and what happens? It just sweeps that tree away, right? Heaven forbid, a car can fall into that river, and what happens, man? It just kind of submerges that car, and it keeps going about its business. It takes a lot to dam up a river. It takes thought, and it takes you being methodical. It takes resources, and time, and patience, and preparing, and so with that in mind, our love is not covenantal. If I can argue anything today, I think I would argue our love is contractual, it's a contract sort of love. And what I mean by that then is, I love you if. I'll love you if you affirm me. I'll love you if you stroke my ego. I'll love you if you love me in return, but not the way you think I need to be loved. You need to love me a specific way. And then I will, in fact, turn and love you. And then the moment then, church family, that we're not loved the way that we feel like we need to be loved or seen the way that we feel like we need to be seen, well, what happens then is we start to look for opportunities to dam up our flow. Does that make sense? We start to look for opportunities to say, hey, like, you're not pursuing me the way I want to be pursued. And so as a matter of fact, I'm just going to start cutting you off a little bit. I'm going to remove some of my love. I'm going to hold back. I'm going to kind of retract a little bit of what I should be given to you. And so there is no more of loving folks out of an overabundance of love that Jesus Christ has modeled towards us, but rather in those moments, we become the God. And we say, hey, I'm going to give you love as I seem appropriate, but not necessarily based off what you deserve, but off what I feel that you deserve. And so God's love is covenantal. It flows, all flowing, all the way into eternity. Our love is contractual if you want to write something down. We're very matter-of-fact in how we love based off how folks love us. The problem then with contractual type of love is that it leaves you in a perpetual state of want. You always are wanting someone to do something else for you to be able to love them. You want 
your spouse to respond a certain way. You want your friend to respond a certain way. Your coworker, your boss, your fill in the blank to respond to you a certain way. And if they respond that way, well, then you can be loving towards them. Does this make some sense to y'all this morning? But whenever they don't, what do we do? We just start to build some dams. And we're left in a state of want, wanting more. And so big idea is this. Without true love, uh, you only have want. Without true love, you only have want. For those of you taking notes or online taking notes, without true love, you only have want. Three points by which I hope to point this out to you. Uh, The first is this. Love reveals who you worship. Love reveals who you worship. Love reveals selfishness. It's going to be fun when we get to camp out there together. It's been three weeks, so I'm especially stoked to get to do that with you. And then love flows from Jesus. Turns out love is not a verb at all. Love is a noun. We can't love apart from being loved by Christ. And so love, point number one, point one, love reveals who you worship. Love reveals who you worship. If you're ready, say ready. All right, four of us are ready to rock and roll. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If you're new to Heights community, we don't do anything super special. We just preach straight through books of the Bible. So 1 Corinthians 1, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. It says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clinging cymbal. Uh, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, well, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so the Apostle Paul is coming in here, and let me remind you, we're looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're kind of looking at 16 different questions that we believe the Church of Corinth might have been asking during that time, and what the Apostle Paul would have been responding to. And so if you can remember with me just a few weeks ago, Pastor David kind of kicked off the sections on tongues and prophecy, and he preached on that. If you missed that, catch the podcast. Uh, this week, we have a little bit of an interlude on the Apostle Paul's coming in, and he's saying, hey, the, the gifts are great, but if you don't focus on the grace, the gift isn't worth anything. And so you can have all the gifting in the world, but if you're not focused on the grace of God and all you're focused on is the giftings that come from God, you don't have any love, you're actually not doing anything. Your, your work is actually... Nothing. It's actually, you can be burnt up. You can give everything. You can have all the knowledge, all the wisdom, all the faith. You can have all the most incredible gifts that you could ever imagine. And if you're doing it from a place of like, I want to be seen or I want to be known or I want to be heard, instead of a place of like, no, there's a loving Jesus that died on a cross in my place as my substitute and has sent me some incredible gifts for his glory, like by his grace alone, he's given me that. If it's anything short of that, the Apostle Paul says, what you you're doing is just a noising gong or a clinging symbol. And so when we get in the next week a little bit more on gifts of tongues and prophecy, we can't skip over this. He's saying you can exercise all of those gifts, but if you do it apart from love, you're not doing anything. You're just a noisy gong or a clinging symbol. And so what he's getting to here is this, I believe. The, the church of Corinth was very smart. It was a high intellect, a very diverse culture, in cities, some historians, many historians would believe it was probably the biggest, most diverse city during its time. And people there had an incredible amount of gifts that they were gifted with, and they got to use those gifts. And so when you think about that, like, think about like a city like New York or LA, perhaps. Like, if I had to guess, the majority of us, majority of us in this room don't go, I'd really like to move to LA. You know, like, we just love the seasons, you know, so much. We don't want to go there. Most of us in this room don't think, I would really love to move to New York. 
Whenever you think about LA or you think about New York, you don't think about moving in there so you can get your two-story house and your white picket fence and your labradoodle. Instead, you think about like when you go to New York or LA, it's like you go there to make it. Right? You go there to make something of yourself. You go there to be an actor or some sort of musician. You go there to make it in that world. Well, that's how Corinth was. And so people didn't go to Corinth because they wanted to live in Corinth and raise their family there. People went to Corinth because they wanted to make it. They wanted to succeed. They wanted to make something of themselves. So everyone there has an incredible amount of gifts. Right Now, some of the gifts of New York and L.A. we would not want also in this church, would we? But these folks, man, are very, very... Gifted. It was the gifts that God had given them that Paul is calling out. And in effect, he's saying this, hey, you think you're smart? You are. You're so smart. You're such a high intellect. And also, so is everyone else. Oh, you think that you're faithful and you're, you're willing to sacrifice a great deal to be here? Awesome. So is everyone else. So you think about going to LA to make it. You're going to have to have some faith. You're going to have to make some sacrifices. Not necessarily godly, but you're going to have to have some faith and make some sacrifices. The Apostle Paul is saying, you're no different than anyone else around you. Instead, you're, you look like the culture. You sound like the culture. You're looking at your gifts instead of looking at and recalling the grace of God that's been given to you in and through Jesus Christ. Stop looking at the gift and be mindful of the grace. It's important for us in this moment to remember together, family, that the gifts of God do not change you, but oh, the grace of God does change you. And God has graced you with some gifts for his glory and not for your own. And so love, as we get into this, Paul is saying to Corinth, it reveals, it reveals who that we worship, how we worship, what we're worshiping, simply by looking at the motivations of why we do what we do. Paul is calling them here to realize you're using all these incredible gifts and you're doing so in a way that looks like everyone else around you. And so what's interesting about that is that there's a lot of folks in the church that still do that, yeah? Yeah? Yep. No one in the, we're, we're healthy and happy, okay, yeah. This is the one, this is the one, huh? Okay, yeah, a bunch of sinners. And so this is, right, he's saying you're, you're, you're leaning into these gifts instead of leaning into the Grace of God. And so what's interesting about that is that you can have all the best gifts. You can be the best public communicator. You can be more sacrificial than everyone else. You can have a great deal of faith in yourself, as a matter of fact. And Paul says here, you're spiritually nothing. You haven't done anything for the kingdom. You're just kind of building up your own kingdom. You haven't done anything for the resurrected Lord. You are Lord in that moment. And so there's this kind of this correlation that Paul is trying to build out where essentially what he's saying is, is stop looking at the gifts and be reminded of the grace because you look like everyone else. I don't know how to keep saying it to you. Now, what's interesting about that, and this is kind of perplexing, is like not only can you have the best gifts and be spiritually nothing, but you can also use the spiritual gifts of God for God's good purposes and still be spiritually nothing. And that's tricky, but Matthew 7 exists, so we've got to read it. Matthew 7 says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. And so not, this is kind of, this is why I say it's kind of like a bomb he's dropping on the people here. Because it's not only that you can have good gifts and lean into those gifts and find, try to find salvation in them, but you can have incredible gifts, think you're using them for the kingdom, but at the heart of that thing, been using them just to exalt yourself. 
And he says, I'll look at you and say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's an interesting thing that Christians tend to forget that God uses even the atheist to accomplish his works. Yeah? Think about this with me so we can break this silence in here a little bit. What if only Christians could cook well? What would the world look like around us? Like only Christians could cook well. That's just a common grace that God has given. Some folks can cook incredibly well. What if only Christians were the only ones that could cook well? Heaven forbid. I didn't mean to laugh at myself in the last service, but I did when I said this. What if only Christians were good actors? Like, I don't know that we'd have any TV to watch if that was our standard, right? If we're being honest, there's just not a lot of Christian movies. You're like, bro, you really got to see this one, you know? There's some, there's some good ones. But what if, what if only Christians were good actors? What would we be left with? It'd probably be great. I'm sure it'd be great across the board eventually, but what if only Christians did acts of service? Like, what if only Christians were the ones that went for the brokenhearted? What if only Christians were the ones that served the homeless? What if only Christians were the ones that did foster and adoptive care? Like, we would be really limited on what God's kingdom could look like here on earth, wouldn't we? And so God uses not only Christians to get the job done, but most certainly he can use atheists to accomplish his good works as well. And so Paul is coming in and he's saying, hey, don't be so caught up in the gift and substitute that gift for salvation. Don't, don't look so much at this gift that you kind of think you're nailing it and in so doing because of your work and your performance, you think that now you've made it into the kingdom of God. It's not by your work or your effort that you make it into the kingdom of God. It's by Jesus' work and effort that you make it into the kingdom of God. And so if you want to look at a gift and even if you want to look at grace, then you have to look at Christ and you have to look at his work walking in perfection and his work as he goes to the cross for you and his work as he resurrects the new life and sends you the Holy Spirit so that you can be saved, not by your good giftings, but by the grace of God. And so because all they did was look at their gifts, they thought that they were achieving. They thought they had measured up. They thought that they were making it in the world. And Paul looks at them and says, no, 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 no. You're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Now, to be clear, the apostle Paul doesn't just have it out for some percussion instruments. That's not what he's doing. Uh, in their culture, the pagans, those are folks that do not worship Jesus. It's kind of everyone who didn't worship Jesus, whenever they would start a worship service, they would start a worship service by banging on a gong or clanging on cymbals. It's kind of like a church bell would, or like a church would use church bells to say, hey, there's a worship, there's something happening here. And so Paul comes out the gate to this church that thinks that they have it all figured out, and he says, hey, in your worship, because of what you're focused on, all that reveals is that you worship yourself or some false god. You look no different than the culture around you. There's nothing to separate you. You tracking with me on that? Okay, I'm gonna need y'all to talk to me or we're gonna be in here forever. I got an extra hour of sleep, okay? I have 400 more words in these notes and I need, and you're the second service. I'll do it. I'm not scared to do it. I'm not scared to do it, okay? What he's revealing then is just how contractual our love can be instead of how covenantly faithful God is. And so when we think about that second point, we'll camp out here for a second. Second point is this, love then reveals our selfishness. Love reveals, and I mean true love, when you're met with a picture of true love is gonna reveal just how selfish you are. And so 1 Corinthians 13, four through seven, you should have it memorized uh, if you've been to more than one wedding. How many of you used it in your wedding? Show of hands, this is the moment of truth. Okay. We'll see if you would choose it again. Love is patient and kind, I'm just kidding. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so this is probably the most quoted scripture for weddings. I've got to officiate probably 35 weddings now at this point or more. And, and people are always like, oh, could we read 1 Corinthians 13? And I'm always like, yeah. And on the inside, I'm like, if you knew what he was saying, <laughs> maybe you wouldn't want to read 1 Corinthians 13. We were at a wedding yesterday. My wife and I actually, 1 Corinthians 13 came up. So how can the wedding text call us out and back us into a corner, pastor? That's a great question, church family. I'm glad we're on the same page today. That's a good question. Let me say this to you twice so you get it, and then I'll repeat it again here in a moment. Everything that Paul mentions about love in this text, he's already told Corinth they are not that thing. Okay, so everything that Paul mentions here in regards to what love is, he's looked at Corinth and said, you're not that already. He's already done that in the first uh, 13 chapters. So let me remind you just a little bit. He says, love is patient and kind, but if you can remember with me, Paul's already called out Corinth for mocking his preaching, mocking his speaking ability. Does that sound very kind and loving to you? Uh, He says, love does not envy or boast, and you might recall the the three weeks we spent in sexual uh, preaching on sexual immorality with the man who was having sex with his stepmom, and Paul comes out to them, and he says, why are you boasting? Ought you not rather mourn? Yet they're over there just kind of exalting the sin that was happening in the church. He says, love does not insist on his own way, and it's somewhere between six to eight times, really, Paul quotes Corinth trying to insist on their own way. Whenever they say things like, well, food was made for the stomach, and sex was for the body, and so we'll eat what we want, and we'll do whatever we want to do physically with our body. And Paul's like, you got to watch eating with idols. And they're like, well, we know, everyone knows there's only one God, so we can eat anywhere that we want to eat, right? And then the pastors that David preached on, where current Corinth came in, and they were being manipulative with their words. And they're like, well, you don't want us to have sex. We'll just never touch a woman again. And you're like, now they're just being passive aggressive in in this regard. And so Paul is exposing, right, just how contractual their hearts are, right? If you won't give me my way, then I'll just take my ball and go home instead of having a covenantal love that God has bestowed upon them. And so everything Paul says love is, he's simultaneously telling Corinth, you're not that thing. You are not that thing right now. And with that, then, we can play a little game, I believe Jeff mentioned in in the call to confession. Put up four for me, thank you. How does this text read if we put your name in there instead of the word love or it? Does it change kind of how it hits you a little bit? Perhaps. Corey is patient and kind. Until Corey is stuck in a minivan with four kids. Right? Am I right? Love does not envy or boast. Let me fill your name in. CJ is not arrogant or rude, perhaps, until someone crosses him. You know, Dathan does not insist on his own way, unless perhaps he's not getting his own way. Right? Think about it. Think about your last fight with your spouse. How you doing? How you doing here? Last time you over-disciplined your kiddo if you have kids. Last time you got mad at your coworker, your boss, your friend. We got students in the room. Soft. Saw a social media post, rubbed you the wrong way. How are you doing in light of this? So-and-so, verse 5, is not irritable or resentful. Fill in your name, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So-and-so bears all things, just allows it to hit you. It just hits you and rolls down your back. No big deal. 
never resentful, never frustrated, never angry. How are we doing as a church? Turns out we probably need Jesus, yeah? If you want to know who Jesus is, Jeff told me to give you something real simple to take away for the new believer in the room. If you don't know Jesus, just put his name in there. And my, 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 you'll have a whole list of his character traits for you. He's the only one that perfectly fulfills that for us. And so the moment you enter into, it's important to setting because the moment we enter now into the context of community, we see that we're not so loving. You see, whenever you are by yourself, you can be the most loving person in the world, man. You can be the most giving person, the most faithful person, the most thoughtful person. You can be an incredibly awesome person. Whenever you are all by yourself, whew, you're great, right? But the moment we add someone else to that equation in this room, what just happened? You're like, oh, dang, turns out I do need Jesus. Looks like I don't have it all. I'm not the most patient. I'm not the most giving. I'm not the most loving. And so love has to have another to be poured out upon, or it's always going to remain selfish. Like love always has to have someone to be a recipient of that love or else it's always going to remain contractual. You have to have someone else you're giving that to. You have to have a place from which that love flows like that raging river. It's got to be able to bash against your body and that love only flows from Christ. And whenever we look at who Jesus is and what Jesus has done as the perfect picture of love, not as some verb, but as the most proper noun we could ever put on the pages, when you look at who Christ is and who he is, this loving, faithful, generous, awesome, ever-flowing, ever-moving, like raging river that comes against your heart and soul. When you're met with that level of righteousness and that level of perfection and like that level of beauty, now when you look at a list like this, you go, that's not me. Like I'm not that loving. I'm not that patient. I do envy. I am full of jealousy. I hate that my neighbor bought this or that thing. You know, I hate that she's wearing that. Why can't I just own this? Why can't I buy this? To quote Matt Chandler, right? When we don't come face to face with this sort of love, we stay in middle school. He just said that, imagine, I said, we're just, we're just a bunch of middle schoolers running around trying to impress everyone else with the things that we buy, with insurmountable amount of debt that no one actually cares about and can see. We just stay selfish little Kids, and so let's talk about some of this. Love is patient. I feel, I feel pretty patient until it's the end of the week, right? Easy to be patient in the moment, easy to kind of stuff some stuff down, but this is not what the text is talking about. Paul actually says in the, the original language, it's, uh, is lo- love is long-suffering. So patience then is not you're stuffing stuff on Monday and you're stuffing stuff on Tuesday and you're kind of stuffing stuff, getting a little full, but you're stuffing some stuff down on Wednesday and then Wednesday night when you're putting the kids to bed, you explode on everybody. That's not, that's not long-tempered, is it? It's just being fake and stuffing stuff instead of surrendering it to Jesus then. Patience is not steaming and boiling to the point of explosion. Anybody else been in there with me? I'll preach to myself. It's fine. Patience has a long fuse and a short memory. That's convicting for me. Patience has a long fuse and a short memory. I feel like I'm doing pretty good until I blow up on somebody. Love is kind. Well, the word for kind is the same used word for describing food that is both tasty and healthy, which can be a hard combination sometimes, yeah? Well, so is genuine kindness. It is tasteful. It is healthy for you. It's not putting on a smile than murdering someone in your mind. Okay, we were at a, we went to that gala, as you guys call it, and uh, it's so funny. Just tell you a little story about your pastor here and his wife. So we're at, we're on our way to this gala where they're about to auction off like ten thousand dollar labradoodles. Okay, I have a labradoodle. At any point, you want to give me ten grand? Hey, he's all yours. His name's Tank. He's great. I'll give half the money to the capital campaign. You can have him. Okay, ten thousand dollar labradoodles. 
uh, your pastor and his wife in the winds are at Dollar General. So one of these things did not belong with the other. And we're standing in this line, and this uh, Andrea, my wife, gets a little too close to this woman, apparently. And this lady says, oh, excuse me. And Andrea, very nice, she says, oh, sorry, I overstepped my bounds. And this lady looked at her and said, yeah, I think you did. <laughs> this stuff happens to her all the time. It's hilarious. It always happens to her. Okay, listen, that's not kindness, okay? That's not kindness. Turns out passive-aggressive is still just aggressive, okay? Passive-aggressive is still just being aggressive. It is not kindness. Listen, here's the point of that story. Kindness is tasteful and healthy. Kindness is not only the action that you give, but it's also the reaction. Whether it's just internally in your mind or just somewhere subtly down or not so subtly down in your heart, kindness is not just the way you respond physically to someone, it's the way you respond emotionally to someone. And it actually reveals what you love and who you love in that moment. Kindness is not just an action, but a reaction. Love is not irritable, the text says. I don't even think I prayed enough this week to talk about love not being irritable, right? Love does not keep a record of wrongs. I love this. It says, love does not keep a ledger, is what it says in the original language. If you think about someone that's keeping track of the bills or keeping a tally, he's saying, love does not keep a ledger. There is not a little notebook somewhere that you kind of write down everyone that's harmed you or hurt you or fouled you in some way, led you to some form of suffering, right? It's not Billy Madison where you got a piece of paper stuck up behind your couch that says the, the kill list on it, right? It's not a hit list. Love doesn't keep a record in that regard, but rather, right, love keeps no record of wrong. And this is worth setting in because I have this conversation a lot with the men and women that obviously are a part of our church body. And so people will say, well, forgive and forget. Well, I want to tell you, that's not a gospel response. Forgive and forget is not a gospel response. I would say forgive and remember. Like forgive and remember how, the God, how God was redeeming your story through Christ Jesus. Remember the suffering that you've engaged in so that you can experience and better recognize what it was like for Jesus to suffer in your place as your substitute. Like, remember those things. And what's beautiful is like, you know when you're starting to get the gospel, whenever you can look at this this ledger that you've kept and you can remember without regret or you can remember without anger or you can remember without some form of resentment or, or Lord willing, church family, you can remember the pain and the suffering that hurt that has come, and you can remember it without being a victim. Like, I just sent a message to our staff this week, and I said, hey, whenever suffering comes, like, you can either be a victim and victimized, or you can use that suffering as a weapon, and we are dangerous in the hands of a living God. Like, you think about this. I just, we just went to a whole gala two weeks ago that raised $400,000 that was birthed out of my suffering and out of the suffering of a multitude of kids. Listen, God can use your suffering to redeem. You are victorious in Christ Jesus. There's no need to keep a ledger anymore. If you want to keep a ledger of something, write out all the ways that God is redeeming you and redeeming your story, all the ways God forgave you from the time you left your house today where you were not very loving to the time you showed up today and put on a face. Write that down in a ledger. And then let that soak into you and permeate inside of your soul and down deep in your heart and until it finds gratitude and thankfulness. Like you want to write down something, write down all the ways that God comes at you with this covenantal, unending, eternal, faithful love, raging river sort of love that bashes against your soul and begins to change you from the inside out. You want to write something down? Write that down. You want to write something else down? You don't, I don't know what to write. Just start writing this down. You can't go wrong, Yeah. Don't keep it, you are not a victim. 
Now, don't hear me say something I'm not. I'm not saying that when you think about those things, there's not grief. I'm not saying that there's not sorrow. There's not pain. There's not fill in the blank that happens from an intense amount of suffering that exists in this room. But what I am saying is this. Because of the life, because of the love that Christ first had for you, you are victorious in him. And you can be victorious in him. And the moment that clicks for you, that in the midst of feeling pain, God can use me in a way that is dangerous against the enemy. Oh, man, it'll set you free. The gospel will straight set you free. Amen? Some of that was in my notes. It's been three weeks, though, so it's like got some stuff on my chest, you know? Don't have to keep a ledger. Oh, love finds no joy in unrighteousness. Let's camp out here, and then we'll, we'll start. We'll keep bumping on. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness. I love this. People will always come to God looking for what he can provide. And in some ways, that's okay. But in some ways, that's going to land you in some real serious legalism where your love towards the Lord will end up being contractual if you're just always asking him what you get out of the deal. Does that make sense? And so there are men and women alike that, that come and they say they want love and acceptance and praise God. He will give you love and acceptance. And there's some women and men that will come and, and they want to come because of the law. And they're like, I just want to know how to live a good life. And, and he'll tell you that too. But at the same time, if all you do is focus on the things he provides or the things you can provide for him, that's contractual love. Because the, the day you're showing up and kind of doing all the right things, you're reading the Bible, you're saying prayers, you're serving on a Sunday, and you feel as if God isn't present, now all of a sudden you're mad at him because you're doing all the right things and he owes you something. Or, or the moment something in your story does kind of unsurface and come up and you do kind of start to take on, the enemy whispers in some victimized mentality into your mind, you'll start thinking, well, God, where are you? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you present? So there's lots of reasons that people come to God, but the text here says love finds no joy in unrighteousness. That means that love is not seeking love. Love is not seeking works. Love is only looking for righteousness. Love only wants to do what is truly righteous, what is truly perfect, what is truly good. And what's great about that is that is such a, I don't even know how to explain it, it's such a daunting reality that the definition of love would be someone who only seeks out what is good, right, and perfect. There's no way I can accomplish that. There's no way we can accomplish that. In some ways, we can aspire, sure, but across the board, the reality is we cannot look for what is only righteous, what is only perfect. We cannot, we cannot only search those things out. More often than not, we search out for the things that are unrighteous because they make us feel good about ourselves. Right? When we lash out at someone, when I don't model patience, when I do model anger, much of the list on what love is, when I model the opposite of that, it feels good to me. If we can be transparent together, yeah? Like, it feels nice when I get to release a little bit. It feels nice when someone gets a speeding ticket who I don't like very well. It feels good whenever, like, a coworker doesn't get what they deserve. There are moments in our life, in our sinful disposition, where we long for these, like, adverse realities for love to come into our story, and we go, man, thank you, Jesus. And at the end of the day, it's not, it is Jesus because he's sovereign, but it's the effects of living in a, living in a sinful, fallen world. They bring those things about. We do not look always for righteousness. We regularly are motivated by unrighteousness, not by righteousness. To go with the text here, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, I think God uses children, or I think Paul uses the illustration of children here because they're little difficult monsters sometimes. I called them little demonic monsters, and then I invited the church to serve and kids the first service, and... They laughed, but we really do need you to go serve those little monsters back there. Take a cross back there with you and do some exorcisms. 
Okay, sorry. Stick to my notes. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. Listen, think about this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And when you think about kids, sure, they're cute. They're sweet. They're all those things. They're also selfish little monsters. Yeah? I have four of them, and I love them. But call a spade a spade. Sometimes they're really difficult. Yeah? Anybody else? Okay, thank you. But the reality is, like, we can't, look kids, we can't look at kids and their shortcomings and their failures and separate them from our own life as if they're not connected to us. Where do you think they learned that from? So why is it that Paul here uses the illustration of a child? I think because it's fitting, because parents especially uh, get that, but also then because it forces us to put the mirror in front of our own face and go, we're not so different, you and me. This little rebellious kid, that's exactly who I am when I'm not believing the gospel, man. Whenever I don't believe in the things that Jesus tells me about himself and who I am because of what he's done, that love becomes very contractual. It's not covenantal. It's not easy to kind of give this unending, unwavering, selfless, overflowing, ever-flowing, all-encompassing sort of love to someone if I don't believe that that's true for me. And yet, at the same time, the gospel tells me, man, that the grace of God surpasses any of the gifts of God. That the grace that God has given me far exceeds any of the gifting that he's ever going to give to me. So I can't focus on the gift. I have to be mindful of the grace of God. This is all Paul is saying. And the moment that the gift gets exalted higher than the giver of that gift, we're no different than the culture that's around us. Which means that we can't put too much stock in that gift. But we can put all the stock in the world in the grace of God. I thought about that this week. Um, There might be a day coming, church family, where I don't get to preach. Like, I don't get to speak. I don't know what bring that about. It could be sickness. It could be an illness. It could be a car wreck. So what, what would it look like if, for some reason, I couldn't get up and be an orator of God's word if all I did was look for the affirming word you give me whenever I preach a sermon? If I, if I clung and hung on to, like, oh, the chuckle that I get in the second service, or that a boy, Pastor, you did a good job on that one, or when you said this, it, changed my whole life and then the next week and when you said that it changed my whole life like God's doing a good work in you ma'am or you know but what would Corey's life look like if I put all my stock in the gift and not in the grace that God has given me what sort of sermons would I preach if I preached for your affirmation instead of the affirmation that the father has already given me through King Jesus right I might itch your ears a little bit but I might not lead you to anything convicting wise right And so it is for us across the board. There's a lot of incredible gifts that exist in this body, man. They're super smart, high intellect. Some of the smartest people I know go to this church. Some of the most faithful people I know go to this church. Some of the biggest givers I know go to this church. And at the end of the day, Paul says, if you're focusing more on the gift and the way you think God's responding or the way you think someone else is responding to you, that gift is not going to be enough because it's going to fade Everything that you put your hope and trust in in this world, apart from Jesus, listen, is going to leave you. It's going to leave you. There's an expiration date on it. And so the plea here from a pastor to his people is the same plea I would give you as a pastor to my people. Man, cling to the grace of God, not to the gifting not to the attaboy, girl, not to the pat on the back, not to whatever you think it is you bring to the table. Cling to the grace that God has given you in Christ Jesus, because that's the only thing that's going to remain forever. Last point is this. Love flows 
from Jesus. I'm going to read this, and then I'll have you all uh, stand up when I'm done reading, have the team come up. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13 says this. Hey, love never ends. Love never ends. You need to know in the kingdom of God, you're still going to be loving and being loved by Jesus. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. Why? Well, because all the prophecies will be fulfilled in Christ on that day. There's no more prophetic words to be said. As for tongues, they're going to cease. Well, why? Well, there is no more angelic language. There is no more need to speak a different tongue or language. There will be one tongue and one language and it will be us joining in with that worship that's already taking place now with seraphim angels lit ablaze screaming out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Right? All we will know is the grace of God in that moment, but not necessarily the gifts of God. All of that's going to pass. Knowledge is going to pass because the wisdom that existed in the beginning will be there eternally. And so verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then in the kingdom, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Listen to me. Even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me as we prepare our hearts and minds for communion. As we enter into communion here, I want to let this last bit of this text just remind us of a couple things here. He says, now I know in part, but then in the kingdom I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. Let me ask you, if, if there was an invitation on the table for you today to have someone love you perfectly, would you take that invitation? Like if there was an invitation, if I could give you an invitation to have someone patiently love you when you're not being lovable, would it be an invitation worth receiving? Like just think about that gospel for a minute. Like Jesus fully knows you. And in fully knowing you, chose to come down to humanity and live a perfect life. And in fully knowing you and me, chose to go to the cross. And in fully knowing us and knowing what we're capable of, still decided to resurrect and send us his Holy Spirit to seal us in him forevermore. That's a, that's a love unimaginable, church family. That's a love unfathomable. Like that's a love that says, I loved you long before you loved me. That's a love that says, I love you regardless of how you respond. I love you in spite of how you respond. I, re I love you unconditionally. Like that's why we call that, a, like that raging river, such a good illustration of that. It just sweeps you up in it. We wanna put a dam up the moment somebody comes at us with the wrong tone or the wrong Facebook post and yet we deny Jesus every day and he says that's okay because I love you unconditionally to be fully known right if we were to take just the thoughts you had this morning and put them up on the projector behind us would it reveal that you're loving just the car right here how loving might we think you are perhaps last night putting the kids down if we were to put the actions up the words up and yet that's the stuff that Jesus looks at and sees and goes, I know, that's exactly why I came. And where you fail to love, I will love you. The wrath that you deserve, talk about a raging river, it went against me whenever I went into the cross so that you don't have to feel that wrath. That's what he does. Like the river of wrath poured out, meant for us, hits Christ so that we don't have to experience guilt and shame, but rather we can be moved 
uh, by love. And so communion is an opportunity to confess, hey, we don't look like you, but you can help us get there. He says, for I received from the Lord, but I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death uh, until he comes. So for those of you that are in Christ, this is a meal that is for you. As you come forward in a moment, you'll see the bread which represents Christ's body broken for you. And just think about that when you come forward. You'll see the cup which represents Christ's blood that was spilled in your place as your substitute. I mean, love and fathom will pour it out uh, for you. And so I would encourage you to do a little business with the Spirit before you come forward. Confess to Him areas where you're not very loving based off that list and areas where you need the Holy Spirit to come in and change. And then come and feast. And just come and eat and dine with the King. You guys can come forward when you're ready.